you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 will be in verses 28 down through chapter 3, verse 3. We'll read that together. If you want a copy of the text, it'll be on the screen for you as well. But in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, the, the Apostle John says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, as we read that text this morning, the thought going through many of your minds is, that's not a Christmas Bible verse, right? That's not the story of Jesus being born. That's not the story of the wise men coming to visit him. That's not the story of the shepherds in the field who are tending their flocks by nights. It's not a Christmas text. But one of the great wonders and mysteries of Christmas and the message that we see whenever this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary and born of her. One of the great wonders and mysteries of the message of Christmas is that because of that child that you and I are now able to be children of God. Because of the birth of Jesus, you and I are now able to be sons and daughters of the God Most High. And John, in this particular text, he digs into that a little bit and talks to us about what that means and what that looks like. Now, some of you, at first glance, you go, well, aren't everyone born as children of God? Everyone in the world are children of God. And with the consistent testimony of the scriptures, from, uh, particularly in John's writings, as he uses that language of being born, is not that we are born of the flesh as children of God. Because you go back into John chapter 3, and he says, for that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And what John tells us is this, is listen, you're not everyone is born as a child of God. But they don't come, we don't come out of our mother's wombs as sons and daughters of God, right? It's not because you were raised in a Christian family and it's not because you were attended a Christian school and it's not because your parents brought you to church every time that the doors were open. That doesn't make you a child of God. It's not because you have particular conservative values or you always vote for a particular political party. It doesn't make you a child of God. The consistent testimony of the Bible is that the, our, in, in our birth, we are not born as sons and daughters of God, but we must be born again to be sons and daughters of God, to be his children. And so as we look at 1 John chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, I think it stand, it's pretty clear and it just jumps off the page at us that there's a, there's, a, there's, there's a couple of experiences that children of God, that sons and daughters of God, those who have been born of God and born of him, there's a couple of experiences that they encounter. There's a couple of marks of those who have truly been born of God. Not those who, again, were raised in a Christian home and went to a Christian school and vote for a particular conservative party and back that agenda. That's not what John says, but there's a couple of marks that he does say are indicative of those who have been born of God. 
Because this child has come, Jesus, you and I are able to be sons and daughters of God. But what does it look like to be his son? What does it look like to be his daughter? And John tells us at the end of chapter two, in the beginning of chapter three of this little epistle, he says it revolves around these two words, his love and his likeness. His love and his likeness. So that's where we're going to dig in this morning and consider what that looks like for you and I. If indeed we have been born of him. And the first thing that we, I want to point out to you in this particular text is this, is that those of us who are sons and daughters of God, those who have been born of him, those who have passed from death to life and from darkness to light, John says that if you're a child of God, that you rejoice in his love. You rejoice in his love. Look at what he says in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1. He says this, coming off the heels of 229, where he's just reflected on being born of him, being born of God. He uses that language in 229, and he moves straight into 3-1 as he's thinking in that very thought about being born of God. He moves into 3-1, and it's like his heart begins to erupt with joy overflowing. And why is his joy overflowing? Because he says in 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. John's heart begins to erupt as he thinks about God's great fatherly love. And he begins to rejoice in the fatherly love of God. And he says, listen, you've got to see this. In fact, that word see in the text is a command, right? He says, here's what you got to do. You got to see Now, John's not just talking about your visual faculties, like your eyes being able to behold something. The word that John uses here in the text literally means this. It means you've got to experience it. You've got to encounter it. It's got to move from conceptual to actual. It's got to move from fantasy to reality in your life. You've got to experience it. You've got to encounter it. You've got to perceive it. It's like the difference between seeing a postcard, right? We all travel to, when when you go on vacation, you go to these little destinations and they got postcards, right? From Key West or postcards from Vail or postcards from Hong Kong, right? And inevitably, all these postcards and all these locations that you might travel to go on vacation, they have a picture of the sunrise coming up over the city or the sunrise sunrise coming up over the mountains or the sunrise coming up over the beach or the sun setting in those places. But there's a difference between seeing with your visual faculties this postcard and sitting on the beach as the sun rises and falls and actually encountering and experiencing, isn't there? It's a big difference between those two things, between seeing it just with your eyes and experiencing and basking in the glory of it and rejoicing in it. And that's what John says here. He says, those who have truly been born of God, those who have truly become sons and truly become daughters and truly become children of God, they rejoice in God's love because they know God as their father. See it, experience it, perceive and know it, this love that God has. John says, those who do, they know God as their father. There's a big difference, isn't there, between knowing God is a father and having some kind of intellectual category and conceptual thought process about God being a father. There's a difference between knowing God is a father and having a category for that somewhere in the back of your mind versus knowing God as your father. That little word, in fact, there's only two, one letter difference between those two words, but there's a monumental difference in meaning between is and as. There's lots of folks who grow up in the church and there's lots of folks who grow up in our culture who have some kind of conceptual um, framework for God being a father. They've heard God is a father perhaps all the time, all their lives they spent time in church. 
or they've spent time in their homes and their parents talk to them about God being a father. There's a big difference, though, between knowing God is a father and knowing God as your father. One is intellectual understanding. The other is experiential understanding of the unfailing love of a father who's been gracious and generous and poured himself out. Now, when I really, even when I begin to scratch the surface and talk about God's fatherly love, some of you have defenses that go up immediately, don't you? And here's why, because you didn't have good experiences with an earthly father. And so what you do is, instead of working from that experience with a heavenly father down to understand the experience with an earthly father, your experience with an earthly father causes you to project that upon God as a heavenly father. And you go, I don't want anything to do with a God who is father. And yet John says, what John says here and what we need to see is that the fatherhood of God should be the benchmark by which we measure our earthly experiences with our dads. As opposed to taking our earthly experiences with our dads and measuring our experience with a heavenly father on the basis of those things. Right? It's kind of like if you, if, you, if you went to a particular restaurant and you ordered you know, um, some fajitas. I love fajitas, man. Any Mexican restaurant we go to, that's about all I, that's like the staple. It's kind of my benchmark for measuring whether or not a Mexican restaurant is any good. So I go to that, you know, you go to multiple Mexican restaurants and you order the fajitas at each one and you get fajitas at one that's just terrible, right? They're terrible. They're horrible. They're unpalatable. You don't even want to swallow them. Well, the next time I show up at a Mexican restaurant doesn't mean that I'm going to, because I had a bad experience there, that I'm not going to order the fajitas at another one, is it? Why? Why? Because I'm not taking that experience over here and projecting it onto this one. And so some of you, at first glance, at first blush of hearing that God is a father, you're taking that experience of the, of the love or lack of love of an indifferent, emotionally disengaged or disconnected dad that you knew. And you're saying, if that's what God is like, I don't want anything to do with it. But let me, hear, let me caution you this morning and just tell you to push pause because I want you to hear what causes John's heart to erupt. Because what he's saying literally is this, is he issues that command. you got to see this for yourself. you got to see this love of God for yourself. you got to experience this love of God for yourself because there's nothing like it that you've ever experienced before. Listen to what he says about God's love that causes his heart to erupt in this manner. Literally, he says that this love, the nature of it, is, is absolutely foreign to us. It's absolutely foreign to us. If you look in the text back in chapter 3, verse 1, literally when he says what kind of in the text, it literally means from what country, right? If you translate that word literally out of the Greek text, that's what it means, from what country. In other words, where did this come from? Because I've never seen anything like this before in my life. It's absolutely foreign to me. I've never beheld love like this before. I've never seen love like this before. I've never experienced love like this before. It's absolutely foreign. It's from a different country. It's from a different planet. It's alien in the best sense of the word. It's from outside of me. I don't get it. I can't wrap my mind around it. So because this is so contrary to John's experience of any other kind of love he's ever seen before, he says, where did this come from? Well, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And what kind of love is it? It's a couple of things. First of all, it's a condescending love. Now, when I say condescending, most of you are thinking, 
That's a negative term, isn't it? Not necessarily. When you think about condescending, either you can look down on someone and be condescending, or you can come down to someone and be condescending. And that's what we're talking about. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about it, a condescending love, is that what God has done is he's come down. He's come down. In fact, the word that John uses for love here literally, it literally talks about the relationship between a greater and a lesser, a king and a peasant. And what John says, behold this love. See this love between one who is majestic and mighty and powerful and strong and those who are weak and helpless and can contribute nothing to him. This love has come down. John Wesley, in a hymn that he wrote many, many years ago, and the title of that hymn is, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, says it this way. He says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused my pain, for me who him to death pursued. And then he goes into the refrain and he says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? And he repeats that refrain again. Amazing love, phenomenal love awestruck kind of love. How can it be that God, who has existed for all of eternity, should condescend and come down and offer himself in my place? I don't get it. you got to see this for yourself, is what John says. It's a love that comes down. Not that we climb up to do anything to deserve it, but it's a love that's come down. Second thing that he says about the nature of this love being foreign to us is that it's a gracious love. Now, you and I aren't typically accustomed to having love given to us. We're typically accustomed to earning love from others. Some of us had parental relationships that way where we felt like we had to perform in a particular way in order to be loved. Or some of us have had uh, marital relationships that way where we felt like we had to perform in a particular way in order to be loved. And so we're earning love and earning love and earning love in all these facets of human relationships. And John says, it is absolutely foreign to me that God's love would be given. See what kind of love the Father has what? Given to us. It's absolutely foreign I can't get my mind all the way around that, John says. There's nothing in worthiness on my part that's earned God's love. Stuart Townend, in his modern day hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, says it this way, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son and make a wretch his treasure. Why should I gain from his reward? He's asking him this question. He said, and then he goes, I don't have an answer for that question. In other words, there's no reason that I should gain from what is fully deserving to Jesus. His reward. There's no reason that I should gain from that. But this I know with all my heart, he says, his wounds have paid my ransom. That he has given himself to me. And he's given himself for me. John says this love is absolutely foreign to us because it's a love that comes down. We don't climb up to get it. It comes down to us, and it is extended by grace, not by merit. John says I, you got to see this for yourself. you got to experience this for yourself. It's unlike any other love that you've ever seen or known. And then notice what he says is the result of this love in the text. He goes on to say the result of this love is that we are born of God. See what kind of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
It's like John affirming it again. He says, it's amazing that the love that the Father has for us, that he would come down in his Son, and that he would give himself away to us and for us. It blows my mind. It is a phenomenal kind of foreign love that the result would be that we are now God's children. That we would become children of God. And he says, and just in case you're one, you're, you're, you're still, there's a little bit of doubt there. And he says, and so we are right now. Not we shall be one day, but right now here in our experience. We are his sons. We are his daughters, he says. Those who are born of God. Now, most of us, when we think about being, being God's sons and daughters, we jump to like Ephesians chapter 1, and we think of God adopting us as his sons or as his daughters. And that is true. Indeed, God has adopted us. And he's brought us into his family so we have all the legal standing that Jesus Christ has with God the Father. But what John is saying here is more than adoption. He's saying that God plants himself in us, his very spirit in us. If you go back into 220, he talks about an anointing that we receive. Again in 227, an anointing that we receive, which is the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell within us. So the very love of God comes to live in our hearts. He plants himself in us. And so what John says is that on account of the Father's love, Christians bear the title of God's children and that they actually are God's children. They are born of him from this foreign, condescending, gracious love that results in us going from death to life, from alienation to reconciliation, to being orphaned and abandoned and now being born of God and welcomed into his family. Now, you go, that's all great information. What difference does it make? Let me tell you what difference it makes. Right? Let me ask you this question first. Is John getting any new information here? In 1 John chapter 2, 28 through 3, 3. He's, he's not getting any new information. If you go back into John chapter 3, He's already told, Jesus is, John's already written to Nicodemus about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus where Nicodemus looks at, Nick, uh, at Jesus and he says, listen, what I got to do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? You got to be born again. You got to be born from above. You got to be born of the Spirit. He's not getting new information about, about being born of God or being born again, nor is he getting new information about God's love because on the very heels of that conversation with Nicodemus, or included in that conversation with Nicodemus, he says, for God so what? Love the world in 316 that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John's not getting new information here. He's not. He's not getting new revelation here. What he's, what's happening is the information that he's already received is becoming new for him. He's not getting new information, but the information he's got is becoming new. As he thinks on it, as he reflects on it, as he meditates on it, as he ponders it, it's becoming new. And so what's happening in John is that this, this, these truths that he already knows, he's thinking about those things, and he's working on those things, and he's chewing on those things, and they become radioactive in his life. They become red hot in his life, and it causes his heart, which is kind of like a dormant volcano, right, with magma still under the surface to begin to bubble up and eventually begin to explode and erupt when he says, you've got to see this for yourself. You've got to experience this for yourself. 
couple of weeks ago, we took our children to uh, the Nutcracker Ballet at the Rockwell Performing Arts Arts Center. Went to see a friend of ours. Their little daughter was performing in it for the first ballet. And so we're sitting there. For the, the first half of the show, we sat down on the floor. The second half of the show, we sat in the balcony. All right? Um, because after the first half with our kids trying to disrupt everything that was going on around them and everyone that was seated around them, we decided the balcony was probably a better place for us to be positioned for the second half of the show. So the second half of the show, we're in the balcony, and my daughter's on the top of the balcony, and she is dancing to every song that they are playing as the dancers perform on stage. She's dancing in the balcony. And so every time someone would clap for the dancers on the stage, my daughter would look at me and say, clap for me too, Daddy. And so I clap for her, and she look at me, and she goes, she kind of get that little look face, like, oh, that's so sweet. And so we get home these last couple of weeks, and all she wants to do is put on her dress-up dresses and dance like a ballerina in our living room. And so I will sit on the floor um, against the couch, and she will dance and dance, and then she'll back up, and she'll run. She'll say, do the lifts, Daddy, do the lifts. She'll run, and she'll jump into my arms, and I'll lift her up over my head, and she gets this big smile on her face. And then I bring her down, and she'll wrap her arms around my neck, and I wrap mine around her, 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 her back, and I just squeeze her and hug her, and I say, Sarah, I love you. I love you. And she just kind of giggles and laughs, right? There are those moments, right, with our children where they've always perhaps, and I hope they've always known that I've loved them, right? From the time that they were born, my, from the time my daughter was born, I, I changed diapers and I gave feedings, um, or I assisted with those. I was a little bit limited on my abilities, but I, I did some things, right? I changed diapers and gave bottles when necessary, right? Um, I, I tried to provide for her and we got clothes and I would change every time she spit up and every time she was sick, you know, here we are, uh, you know, checking fever and giving medicine and waking up every four hours to make sure the fever doesn't spike and doing all these things to demonstrate love to my daughter and to my son. So they, there's a baseline understanding that we love them. I tell my son all the time, hey man, you're my favorite little dude in the world. In the world. He's like, I know. Now that he's seven, you know, it used to be like something special to him. He's like, I know. There's a baseline understanding they have of my love for them, but there are those occasions, aren't there? There are those occasions in which we might be walking along in the park or dancing like ballerinas in the living room. I pick him up and I look into their eyes and I say, your daddy loves you. They're not getting new information at that moment, but that information you can see in their eyes at times as they sparkle and glow and they embrace me and I embrace them. That, that information, that baseline understanding of love is becoming new. Does that happen in your life? Does that happen in your relationship with God? Are there those certain junctures in your life where you go, I, I knew this truth for a long time. But there was a moment in which it became like magma under the surface bubbling over in my life, producing an overflow of joy as I basked in the love of God. Insofar as I looked at people around me and said, you've got to see this for yourself. You've got to experience this. It's like no love you've ever seen before. In 2006, my wife and I were pregnant with our first child. And I was on a mission trip uh, with a partner church of ours up in Seattle, the church that I was serving. I get a phone call from my wife. And all I can hear on the other end of the line are tears. As she said, I'm bleeding. Now, 
I don't have a medical degree, but I knew what she was talking about. And so as her body rejected that child being developed in her womb, and she miscarried that child, I can remember just being a thousand miles from her and us weeping on the phone together and returning home and holding her and loving on her and embracing her and praying with her and trying to encourage her and then going to a worship service on a Sunday evening at the church that we were serving at. And one of the songs that we sang that night came out of Psalm 23. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And I can remember as we sang that song, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back. I know you are near. Oh, no, you never let go. Through the calm and through the storm. Oh, no, you never let go. Lord, you never let go of me. I can remember as we sang that song, just that truth of Psalm 23, verse 4, that I had known for a long time, all of a sudden began to become radioactive in my life and red hot as the love of God for me overwhelmed me. You have those moments. If you are born of God, not you were raised in a Christian home, not you vote for a particular political party, not that you went to and got a bachelor's of religion at some private university. But if you are born of God, there are moments in which his fatherly love, because you not only know he is a father, but you know him as a father, it becomes overwhelming. And the truth that you know to be true about who he is, it becomes hot in your heart and radioactive, and it begins to bubble over in your life. Do you have those occasions? Maybe not every day, maybe not every week, and maybe not every month does that happen. But can you look back on certain junctures in your life where you thought, see what kind of incredibly foreign love God has for us. See, those who are truly born of him, they rejoice in his love. But how do they rejoice in his love? Look at what John says in verse 29. He says, they also reflect his likeness. They also reflect his likeness. In verse 29, John says it this way. He says, um, if you know that he is righteous, speaking of God, or Jesus, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John says there's a logical connection here between knowing that God in, is in Jesus Christ is absolutely righteous and those of us who have been born of him practicing that righteousness. There's a reflection of his likeness that exists in his children. Listen, last, this past Thursday, um, or this past Friday, I'm sorry, we went to our son's Christmas party, the kind of the end of the, end of the calendar year Christmas party at Stevenson Elementary there in Fate, Texas. And as we walked into the doors, we signed in the little visitor log, and we put on our little badge, and we went down the hall, and my son's class was lined up outside of his classroom down the hall. And as I'm walking toward him, all of a sudden I just hear someone calling out down the hall, Mr. Collins, Mr. Collins. And I'm like going, where is that coming from? 
So I, as I get closer and closer to where these classes are lined up, there's this little girl that I've never seen before in my life. Never laid eyes on her. And to my knowledge, she's never seen me either. And she's going, Mr. Con, you're Caleb's daddy. You're Caleb's daddy. And I'm like, this is a little creepy, right? You got cameras in my house or something? What, what's going on here? Right, and so, but I began to realize that, right, she's seen my son who is, unfortunately for him, a spitting image of his dad. Like the picture that I took over Thanksgiving of him playing in a park, right? His, you can't mistake us. Right? You see me, you've seen him, you see him, you've seen me. Unfortunately for him, it's not a good deal for him, right? It's just not. But she's going, that's your, that's your dad, that's your dad. Why? Because he looks like you. He bears your likeness. Not only does he bear my likeness physically, but at times he bears my likeness in his mannerisms, even his interest, the things that he enjoys doing. Right? Whenever you have children and many times they bear your physical countenance but they also share some of the interests that you have they reflect your likeness and I found it incredibly compelling the fact that this little girl though she had never seen me before she knew exactly who I was because she had seen my son and John says you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him now John doesn't say that what we have to do is be really good and act really well and practice all kinds of righteous deeds and then we get born of him what he says is those who are practicing righteousness now they have been born of him right it's a perfect tense verb it means this it means there was a point in history in their past where god said i love you you're mine I'm going to place my spirit within you, cause you to come to life. And because of that, that, that moment in history carries forward in their lives as they practice righteousness moving forward. In fact, John says throughout his little epistle that that's one of the ways that you recognize Christians is because they reflect the likeness of the one who's given birth to them. And they do it in at least four ways. First, Consider this. How do we reflect the likeness of God? First, John says that God's love and grace become the motive to fight sin rather than an excuse for it. They become the motive to fight sin rather than an excuse for it. If you go back to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, he says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul says, listen, those of you who think that because God is gracious and loving, that you can just do whatever you would like to do and live however you would like to live, and use grace and love as an excuse for sin, you don't really know God. You've never really tasted of his grace and his love. But those who have been born of him, God's love and grace become the motive that drives them to fight tooth and nail against sin in their life, as opposed to the excuse for their perversion. They're pursuing purity and righteousness because of God's grace. Right? It becomes the motive for it, not an excuse. Thomas Manton once said this. He said, when we look upon sin through Satan's spectacles and the cloud of our own passions and carnal affections, we make nothing of it. So we use God's grace as an excuse. We use God's love as an excuse. But in the agonies of Christ and the sorrows and sufferings of his cross, we see the odiousness, in other words, the stench 
of it, that it may become more hateful to us. No less remedy would serve the turn than the agonies, bloodshed, and accursed death of the Son of God to procure the pardon and destruction of sin. By the sin offering and ransom for our souls, we may see what sin is. We make light of sin, but Christ found it not so light matter to expiate it, to turn it away, to turn it aside from his people. So if you've truly been born of God, then you don't look at sin and make light of it. You look at sin and you, with everything that you have, you fight against it and turn from it because of God's love and grace. So you bear his likeness in your righteous practice. In addition, not only do you use grace and love as a motive to fight sin, but when you do sin, because John says, listen, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. So when you do sin, you confess your sins to a reconciling father rather than a condemning judge. So when you come to God as after you've sinned and you confess to him, you're not coming to him cowering under the hand of an oppressive, condemning judge, but you're coming to him as a father who has poured out his love and come down and given himself away and caused you to be born again. A reconciling father, not a condemning judge. Notice what he says in first, what John says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we're confessing to a father, not a judge. Not a judge. Thomas Boston, a Puritan pastor, said, Believers ought not to mourn over or confess their iniquities in a legal manner, viewing them as committed by persons under the covenant of works, but ought to confess and mourn over them as sins done against a reconciled father and breaches of his law as a rule of life. I love the way he captures that truth. You don't come to God as if you're confessing your sin to a judge who's ready to slam the gavel down if you're his child. But you come to God confessing your sin to a father who is giving you laws to rule your life for your good and his glory. And so whenever you sin, you come to him. And you confess, knowing that your reconciliation has already been accomplished, your redemption has already been achieved, that in Christ you are already forgiven, so you bring your sins to him. You don't conceal them and cover them. You don't try and put fig leaves over yourself, but rather you receive the coverings that he would make for you. You confess your sins to a reconciling father, not a condemning judge. Thirdly, Thirdly, you exhibit love toward others rather than harboring hatred for them in your heart. Notice what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Whoever says he is the light and whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. John says, if you say that you're walking in the light and that you're 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 loving and serving Jesus and you're practicing righteousness, and yet there's hatred that is festering and harboring in your heart for another brother, he says. You're not walking in the light. You're not. See, what Ill- illegitimate children, right? They harbor hatred in their hearts. But legitimate children of God, legitimate sons and daughters of God, they love their brothers. They don't hate them. You go, well, I don't hate anybody. I'm not harboring hatred toward anybody in my heart. You want to rise up really quickly to object. But listen, maybe living as if you're not a child of God. Um, Hugh of St. Victor said of this, he said, There may be found some who rebuke the failings of their neighbors, rather in the bitterness of hatred than out of charity. In other words, there are some who correct 
out of hatred, but an out of love. There are some who rebuke out of hatred, but an out of love. He goes on to say, and not so much with a view to correct them as to give vent to the bad feeling they have in their hearts. This is certainly not according to God's will, as it is prompted by revenge rather than a love of discipline. He says, here's what's going on sometimes whenever we go to correct or rebuke or discipline. Whenever we speak truth into someone's life, we're speaking out of this bad feeling, this poor disposition that we have towards them rather than out of love for them. We're jealous of them. We want what they have. And so we're going against them instead of for them. Whenever perhaps we want to go speak words of correction or rebuke. I know I've been there. I imagine you have as well. Not living as if I'm a son or a daughter of God with love in my heart towards others. But when I move out towards them, I'm moving out in hatred and bitterness and resentment and jealousy to correct. It might be the truth that you might be speaking, but you do it in a way. You do it in a way to prove yourself to be right and kind of prop yourself up as opposed to be charitable and loving towards them. The final thing, the final way that we reflect the likeness of the Father who's given birth to us is that we, we actually do lay our lives and goods down for others rather than just talking about it. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, John writes, By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John says illegitimate children, those who just think that they are children, they might gather in small groups and in accountability groups, and they talk a lot about loving and serving others and laying their lives down and their goods down for other people. But he says true children of God, those who have been born of him and are reflecting his likeness, they don't just talk in word or tongue about laying their lives and goods down for others. They actually do it in the way that he has done it in laying his life down for us. Are you reflecting God's likeness? Not perfectly. But are you aiming at that? Are you rejoicing in his love? A love that just shatters all your preconceptions about what love is and what God as a father has done. Are you rejoicing in that love? Are you reflecting his likeness? By looking square into the face of love and grace and then fighting sin as opposed to excusing it. And whenever you do fail and fall, you come to him as a father who loves and has reconciled you as opposed to a judge who's waiting to slam the gavel down and put you behind bars for the rest of your life or set you in a chair with a lethal injection. Because the injection's been given to somebody else in your place. And his name is Jesus. Do you love others and move out toward, love, toward them in love? Do you lay your life and your goods down for them and not just talk about doing so? One of the most miraculous truths about Christmas is that because of this child that was born, as we celebrate his birth in three days, because of this child, you and I can be sons and daughters of God.
If you're not a son or a daughter of God this morning, I'd be happy to visit with you about how to become one. There's never occasions in which you're rejoicing in his love and never instances in which you're reflecting his likeness. I'd love to visit with you about that. If God's pressing on your heart this morning, I'll be in the back. I'd love for you to come find me. The band's going to come. They're going to lead us in one, one song as we kind of reflect on and celebrate. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to rejoice in the love of the Father this morning. I'm going to pray for us as we do. Father, we pray this morning, I pray this morning that as we sing together, as we lift our hearts and voices to you, I pray that the truths that we declare in song and the truths that we have studied in Scripture, I pray that those truths would become red, molten hot in our hearts. And they would cause our hearts to erupt with joy this Christmas. As we think about your love that has come down, that was given, and causes us to be born. And that in these days ahead, that those great truths, as we think about them and chew on them and meditate on them, I pray that they would compel us out into the world that says to everyone who would listen, you got to see this for yourself. Jesus' name.